readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Andrew Child is the author of thrillers such as Too Close to Home and Invisible. Andrew is now embarking on his highest profile work yet teaming up with his brother, Lee Child, to co-write the newest entry in the incredibly popular Jack Reacher series, entitled The Sentinel. In The Sentinel, Jack Reacher finds himself battling bad guys in the murderous world of cybercrime. Let's join Pat Stango as he talks to Andrew Child about working with his famous older brother and what it's like to write one of literature's most enduring heroes. So our guest today is Andrew Child, a prolific and popular author who, for the first time, is teaming up with his brother, Lee Child, to collaborate on the latest entry in the very popular Jack Reacher series. The new book is entitled The Sentinel, and it's on sale now. So let's welcome our guest, Andrew Child. Thanks for coming today. Thanks very much for having me as a guest. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Andrew, things must, you know, must be an exciting time. The book, The Sentinel, is uh, coming out right now. So how are you? How are you doing? How are you handling the big book release? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's always an exciting time. It doesn't matter how many books you've written. When, when a new book comes out, it's, it's really exciting. You know, you spend a lot, lot of time working on a book. And um, at the beginning, it's just thoughts in your head. And then it's, words on the page and when you finally get to hold the finished product in your hand it's it's a wonderful moment so then when you're heading in towards the launch you've got all that excitement but you know there's also a, a degree of nervousness because you obviously hope people are going to like the book and um until it's out there on the shelves and until it's in people's hands you don't you don't know how uh, how they're going to respond so you know it's it's exciting and it's it's mixed with a little bit of a little bit of nerves um and of course, this time, uh, this is the first time I've been involved with a book launch during a pandemic. And so none of the normal things that we usually do um, are possible. You know, normally you'll be going to bookstores and, um, and actually meeting, meeting people and talking to them, which is great after you've been cocooned away in your spare room for nine months or however long it was while you were, while you were frantically typing away. So it's a strange experience, this one, because, you know, I'm missing that, um, that personal contact that you normally have at launch time. How, yeah, how, uh, has there any, been anything that you're able to do? Are you doing like these, you know, a lot of authors are doing virtual events and things over Zoom. Have, have you managed to regain some of the normalcy of a book launch in this time? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Zoom has been um, has, has been huge because we're able to do. We've got quite a few um, virtual launch events lined up for the week that the book comes out, which will be great. Um, we've done a few already with book clubs and um, lots of podcast recordings and um, interviews via via Zoom. So you know, we're doing everything we can to be um, as normal as possible. And of course, in some ways, um, there are some advantages because. There might be people who, due to geography or because they're busy working or whatever, can't necessarily make it to a bookstore. So there are some ways in which Zoom has that much more universal reach than uh, a physical event. So, you know, we're trying to look for the, for the opportunities and look for the upsides to uh, offset. I think it's just, you know, you, you're used to the routine and the ritual of, of, of launch week. And um, anytime anything's a little bit different, you know, it takes a little while to get used to. But I'm sure that we'll be able to find some some positives and capitalize on those. 
Well, this, I mean, this book in particular is, must be also such a different experience for you because like you obviously have a great career writing uh, your own books and your own thrillers up to this point, but this one is such a unique experience because you're writing the, you've written with uh, your brother Lee Child, the newest entry in the, you know, super popular Jack Reacher series. So I guess first off, how did that even come about? How did that opportunity come about? Were you guys at a family barbecue and then, you know, over hamburgers, you end up deciding to write the newest Jack Reacher book together? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, it's the strangest thing. It's not something that I had anticipated or, you know, ever would have imagined happening. But the way it unfolded was that um, um, I had the, the, the latest book in the, um, in the Paul McGrath Janitor series was coming out. So as we were just sort of touching on, you know, the normal routine of, of book launches and so on. So as you probably know, Lee and I both live in Wyoming now. So on the day that my book came out, we were going to go down to uh, the Tattered Cover in Denver for, for an event. So we drove down together um, and it was, it was a horrendous day. It was January. It was snowing. It was, it was really difficult driving to get down there. So really, I was just completely focused on either driving or thinking about the event. You know, what are you going to say? Are you going to make a fool of yourself? Are you going to trip over your you know, your, your feet on the way to the stage, all that stuff. So I had nothing else in my mind other than getting to Denver in one piece and trying to do a good event. So then when we'd finished and we were driving back again, Lee broached the subject. And I mean, I was just floored because, you know, Reacher is his creation. Um, you know, Reacher is a global phenomenon and it's his legacy. And the idea that he would let anybody take that over, I had never, it had never even crossed my mind. But the way he explained it was that, you know, he had written 24 books by this point. And when he started, and I remember this because I remember him saying it at the time, he said that he obviously hoped that Reacher would turn into a long-running series, but that he made a promise to himself and by extension to the readers that he would only ever give it 100%. You would never get to the point, as you sometimes see with long-running series, where the author's just phoning it in. And he got to his 24th book and he, he, he was looking at himself and saying, well, you know, given that he'd been doing it for a long time, how much longer could he keep going? And he figured he probably had another two or three books in him. And after that, he was just going to have to stop. But he was also torn by the fact that he knew that his readers wanted more Reacher. You know, they love Reacher and they look forward every year to, you know, to the latest installment, seeing what Jack has been up to, what trouble he's got into and how he's dealt with it. So he was really torn between these two, you know, these two opposing forces, the need to retire, but also the obligation to continue. So one day he said that he had this experience that was almost like a kind of weird dream where he thought, well, the only way out of this is for me to wake up 15 years younger, you know, younger, more energetic, you know, still full of ideas and, and full, of, full of passion. And he thought, well, obviously that's not possible. But then he thought, well, what about my brother Andrew? You know, he's 15 years younger, you know. And um, so that's where the idea came from. So when he asked me about it, at first, as I say, I was just floored by it. You know, I, I was flattered, honestly, that he would, he would even consider me for it. And then my next thought was, well, could I do it? Because, you know, talk about huge shoes to fill. So, you know, I had to think about it long and hard, but I think that, you know, the key, the key to my decision was what he was saying 
about the fans because you know there are an awful lot of Reacher fans out there in the world. But I was the first. I was the first person to read Killing Floor, um, and this was back when his whole livelihood was you know, and of him and his family was was hanging on whether Killing Floor would, would succeed because he'd lost his job, he had no money, and if this book didn't sell, he was doomed. And so he gave it to me to read, and you know, I was a big thriller reader, always have been. So I had a good sense of, of what a good thriller looked like. So I was terrified because I thought, A, what if it's not any good? How am I going to tell my big brother? And B, what would that, what would that mean for him and his family? You know, they, they, they would starve. So obviously it was a huge relief to find out that the book was, was so brilliant. But what also I remember about reading is, you know, as you probably remember, it's, it's written in the first person. And so um, the way the story unfolds, Reacher gets arrested in the diner um, and then taken up to the police station and questioned. So you're quite a long way into the story before you learn his name. But even before I knew Reacher's name, I knew Reacher, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, Lee and I, we, you know, we are brothers, we have the same DNA, and I knew Reacher, I knew how he would respond, I knew what his motivations were, I knew what was important to him. And so, you know, this was somebody I felt intimately connected to, even before I knew his name. And, you know, this continued year after year with each new book that was written. And, um, you know, we would talk about him while he was writing them. And, you know, there were all kinds of funny little connections, like, you know, the, hit, the, the name of the villain in one of the books was actually one that my daughter suggested, you know, and he, he liked the name and, and, and adopted it. And, you know, the title for one of the books was something that I suggested that he liked. So, you know, there are all kinds of, mm -hmm. of connections along the way. That, so it's um, always been a, a family affair to some degree. Exactly. He put it almost like, you know, Reacher was an extra brother, you know, that, that, we, that we were both connected to. So, um, you know, in the end, I decided, okay, yeah, there's a risk of a, you know, of a catastrophic failure. But I've always been the kind of person that would rather try something and risk failing than, than, than not try it at all. Somebody once told me that the two saddest words in the English language are what if. You know, and I never want to be in a position where I look back and say, well, what if I'd tried writing Reacher, you know? I thought I'd rather, I'd rather go for it. So, um, you know, you've, you've, you've seen the result and I, I hope that people are happy with it. Well, yeah, do you feel, I'm sure there was a lot of pressure starting that process, the writing process, but now that the book is, you know, it's, it's just going out to readers now, but it's, it's done, you know the quality of it. Do you feel a little bit of a sense of relief that, you know, the book is done and you could feel confident we didn't screw it up? You know, I didn't come in well, and, and write the, the, you know, help write the first bad Jack Reacher book. I know. Wouldn't that be awful? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the hardest things to judge because when you're writing a book, you're so close to it. Um, you've lived with it every minute of every day for months and months and months. And it, it really does get difficult to have any kind of an objective opinion as to whether it's any good or not. So that's where um, it, it was an interesting experience writing with someone else because I've never done that before. And that's also where your editors come into play. Um, you know, we were extremely fortunate because we had fantastic editors both in New York and in London. So we had, you know, the best possible team helping us along. So you've got some, hopefully you derive some confidence from their, their reaction. And then within the publishing houses, you know, their first readers, you have, you have their reactions. You know, my wife, Tasha, who's also a novelist, she is always my first reader. So, 
you know, and she would tell me if, if she if there was anything to worry about. She was very enthusiastic and, and supportive. So, um, you know, all of the all of the indications were were there. But, you know, I think there's something about being a, an author. You know, you, you're always sort of having to prove yourself all over again. It doesn't matter how good any of your previous books were. You know, this is the one that you, you know so you're staking everything on on each new book. So, you know. Uh, at the end of it, though, when we when we stepped back and, and thought about it, I think you know the biggest reassurance for me was the fact that Lee was happy with it because you know he's the ultimate judge of Reacher and he was happy. He felt it, it had everything that it needed, um, and so you know I, I'm hopeful that I mean the, what, the people whose opinion the only one that really counts are the readers. So I'm hoping that they are going to agree and, and with with Lee and with the editors and the early readers. Fortunately, the first early reviews that have come through are, are very favourable too. So I'm hoping that so the people who really count, you know, the readers are going to are going to say the same thing. That's great. So how uh, how was the process? And I, and I guess something that probably a lot of people would, would want to know, uh, since it's two brothers writing a book together, and especially you know a character as 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 tough as as Reacher, how were uh, arguments? you know, in the writing room settled? How did, how did, you know, did, well, you know or were there any, or would you do feel like you were, you both were on the same page through the whole process? Yeah, yeah I wouldn't say there were any arguments at all, honestly. Um, we started out, and I mean, the pandemic obviously played a part because when we started out, you know, we live, we're, 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 we are next but one neighbors, but since we're in Wyoming, that means that's three and a half miles apart. So, um, he would typically come over to my place. I have a, an office in, in the basement and we would, you know, we would sit around and we would throw ideas around about, you know, what kind of things might happen and um, where the book should be set and what the tone should be like and so on. And so we've done a lot of that stuff before the pandemic hit. You know, we, we were very much, you know, we were sort of filling the tank with ideas and, and inspirations and we were pretty much ready to go when the, everything went completely crazy. It's in fact, we, you know, the way that the process works is that um, oftentimes the publisher likes to put the opening chapter of a new book in the paperback of the previous book. So, um, you know, the beginning of the book was already written before Christmas because they needed that for, for um, putting in the back of Blue Moon. So we were already well on the path when the pandemic started. And then after that, we moved more to kind of communicating, mainly sort of text back and forth, sometimes phone calls, um, occasionally Zooms, but, um, you know, we had to make it more remote because, you know, I'd traveled a bit in England, we had been to New York, so we, you know, we had to be careful about um, isolating for, for the relevant period. So then it became a little more remote. So I wouldn't say that at any point during the process we had an argument at all, but the thing that I found the most difficult to adjust to was with my previous books, I, I'm not exactly a, a detailed outliner, but I did always have more of a sense of where the story was going than, than Lee ever does. So there would be times where I was feeling a little exposed because I would feel like we were at the end of the story that we had mapped out and I didn't know what was happening next. And that would make me feel a bit anxious. So I would call Lee and say, so what happens next? And he'd say, well, I don't know. Because, <laughs> you know, that's just his, his way of working. And for him, it was nothing to worry about because he's done it that way 24 times before and it's always worked well. So, you know, he was totally calm and relaxed about it. And I think I was getting a little more like, well, 
we need to know what's going to happen, what's going to happen. He was like, don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. And, um, you know, we did figure it out. And what I learned from it was there were times, particularly with this separation that was imposed by the pandemic, where I started to try to plan a little more ahead. You know, I had a couple, uh, there are two distinct, long, detailed scenes that I worked out for different parts of the book. And neither of them actually worked at all. We, they, they didn't get included. Not a single word of them got included because not the location, the location was different. The action was different. The people involved were different because for some reason, it just does not work to try to plan or outline or reach a book. It just, you need that spontaneity that every single point in the book where there's a decision that either Reacher makes or the villains make, it has to be made in that moment to make it that sort of spontaneous, organic, surprising um, direction to take. So, um, you know, I'm hoping that I'll be able to try, you know, carry that, that sort of learning experience forward into the next book because, mm -hmm. um, you know, that was the biggest adjustment for me to make. So, um, you know, if, if, if I can learn from the experience, that will make my life a lot easier. You you can't tell Reacher what to do. He's gonna he's gonna you do his own tell thing. What to... <laughs> so uh, so in this novel, The Sentinel, uh, you know Reacher's trying to mind his own business as usual, and then he ends up uh, saving a uh, character who turns out to be this sort of like, you know, I don't want to say dweeby, but like you know, mousy, a little bit hapless IT manager named Rusty uh, Rutherford. And so I wanted to know what was, because uh, I really like the dynamic between them. So what was the thinking of teaming Jack Reacher up with this type of character, putting him in this sort of like cyber attack world? You know, it, it, it must have been fun to play with Jack Reacher being teamed up with someone like, you know, an IT manager. Absolutely. Yeah, it really was fun. And, you know, I, I got to, I know it can be a danger, but, you know, I got to really like Rusty. I thought he was, a, you know, in my mind, he was a really nice guy. Um, and so the way it all unfolded was, you know, it kind of ties into a question that we get quite often, which is about research for the book. You know, how do we go about researching books? And for me, um, I, 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 in my mind, I, I, I see research as happening in two ways. There's a kind of forward-looking research, which is where you say to yourself, here's a subject or here's a place or here's a, a technology that I need to know about. So you go out and find out about that information. But I don't tend to do too much of that. What I tend to do is what I would call more like retrospective research in that um, I'm a very curious person. I'm always reading about all kinds of different things. And um, for no particular reason, just anything that strikes me as interesting, I'll, I'll want to find out about. And all of that, that stuff then kind of sits at the back of your mind until it's needed and then it springs out. So I'd read a lot of stuff about um, cyber crimes, about ransomware in particular, partly because my background, I worked in the telecommunication industry for, for 15 years. And during that time, um, with the move to internet, e-commerce, e-banking, all of that kind of stuff, a lot of what we needed to know about involved cybersecurity. So obviously it was a bit more rudimentary in those days because I've been out of that game for a long time. But it was something that I was interested in. So I'd read a lot about it. So there's, there's an unbelievable amount of it going on at the moment. And it's very sneaky. It's insidious. You know, people are doing it behind your back and nobody knows until they're hit and then they try to keep it quiet. So I had this in the back of my mind. And at the same time, I was thinking for this new book, I would like 
technically agrees, I'd like to try to put Richard in an environment that he's uncomfortable with, you know. And it's kind of hard to put him in a physical environment that he's uncomfortable with. So I was thinking more of a sort of intellectual environment. And, you know, Richard has become a little bit of a Luddite. He's not up with the technology. He's not, you know, a computer user. He doesn't even own a cell phone. So I just had this vision one day, well, what would happen if Richard arrived in a town where the computer systems that run everything have been locked down? Would Richard even comprehend what that was about? How would he find out about it? And what would the impact be? And I thought, well, in a situation like that, you're probably going to have a, a lot of people wanting to get life back to normal as quickly as possible. You might have other people very happy with the disruption because they have you know, nefarious motives. So it would be fascinating on a couple of levels. You know, one, Richard trying to understand the technological background, but also um, trying to figure out the motivations of all the different players. So that's what I wanted to achieve. And I thought, well, how could you actually go about doing that? So, you know, Richard himself could never get up to speed with the technology quickly enough. So I figured, well, what you're going to need is for there to be somebody else, you know, a, a, another person who has that level of expertise, that, which is what he cont contributes. And then Richard contributes that, you know, he's saving him. And, and, you know, he can see, he can't see the technology, but he can see the bigger picture in terms of the, the bad actors at play. So I figured that out and I was, you know, I talked to Lee about the, um, the whole sort of cyber crime idea and Richard arriving in this town that was locked down. So then we were talking one day and Lee says to me, so yeah, what I think we should do is have, you know, another guy, you know, sympathetic character, maybe a bit dweeby, that is in trouble of some kind. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and for both of us, that was a key moment in this idea of writing together because neither of us had written with anyone else before. So, you know, we both had a question in our minds, you know, how was it going to work? So when we had that first moment, that meeting of minds, actually there were two meetings of minds because we started the book um, in Nashville where Richie goes to listen to some music and steps in to help um, the, the struggling band that uh, you know, was being exploited by this uh, uh, unscrupulous nightclub owner. So you know, we, we both like that sort of setup because you know, growing up watching the James Bond movies, you know how there was always a kind of action, dramatic action scene at the beginning that didn't necessarily relate enormously to the rest of the story, but it kind of set the scene for what you could expect from the characters and from the story. So we had great fun. I mean, he was actually involved with a band he was working with at the time. So I think, you know, the whole music thing was, was fresh in his, was at the forefront of his mind. So we had a lot of fun with that opening sequence and then it moved into, you know, Reacher arriving in another town seeing uh, Rusty Rutherford about to walk into danger and stepping in to, uh, to set things right. And, um, you know, the story unfolded from there. And it, as I say, it was a little uncomfortable for me because I, I was used to knowing more about where the story was going to go. But Lee, you know, was insistent that, no, this is the way we do it with Reacher. And, you know, I think he was right. Yeah, it's, it's just such a, you know, this new story just really does give people everything that they typically love about a Jack Reacher story. And one thing that always strikes me about Reacher that I want to get your thoughts on is, you know, he's this loner. He's this very tough guy. He wants to be left alone, just, you know, ride, ride the bus and go to a diner by himself. But he always ends up helping someone. He always ends up doing the right thing, helping a stranger. And like, and basically as much of a loner as he is, he is a very empathetic character and and to me i think that's one of the reasons that he strikes such a chord 
with people. So, would, you know, what do you think about that? And, and basically, what do you think are some of the reasons why Reacher has endured for as long as he has? Yeah, um, I think, you know, you, you, you're sort of, you know, your question leads exactly to the answer, which is really, you know, Reacher is a sort of timeless character. You know, we know him in the 20th and the 21st century, but he goes back hundreds of years. He's essentially um, the latest incarnation of the knight errant, you know, which is a, a character archetype, which is, which is as old as storytelling itself. It goes, you know, way back to, to Theseus, you know, fighting the Minotaur. So, you know, you've got this huge long tradition that um, for some reason, the human race, you know, we love stories, you know, we, we, we live an alternative life through stories, and we have a need for somebody who will, you know, darkest hour, um, appear, <clears throat> set everything right, and then, then walk away. And I think that that dynamic translates particularly well to the way we live today, because um, life is complicated, there are rules, there are laws, you have to keep a job, you have to have a house, all of these things which from time to time can feel overwhelming. So somebody who is separate from those things, who doesn't have a house, who doesn't have a job, who can, you know, tear the head off some bad guy and not, some, you know, miraculously not go to jail for the rest of his life, um, is extremely cathartic. And, um, you know, the, the, I don't think that, you know, sometimes people focus in on the level of violence that Reacher is involved with. Um, but really, you know, that's just a sort of metaphorical thing. That's just, you know, the, the, the indicating the, you know, the, the scale of the injustice that the Reacher is fighting on our behalf as the reader. So, uh, what what are some qualities? What are what are some Jack Reacher qualities that you think Lee has, that Lee Child has, and that maybe you have? Like, what what, it, what would you say is the most Reacher esque thing about each of you? Well, you know, it, it might not be something that people always see, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that, you know, Reacher is, he, he's simultaneously very pedantic and he's very fascinated by knowledge and by trivia. And, um, you know, that is, I'm certainly very pedantic to, to a fault. And, um, you know, Lee is fascinated by, by facts and by trivia. You know, I guarantee you that if you were to challenge lead to 10 games of Trivial Pursuit, he would win 10 times. You know, I've played him sometimes and he's won the game before I've got a single one of those little, you know, cheese-shaped things that you put, you put in, your, um, in, your, in your counter. So, you know, he loves all of that trivia. And like me, he is, he is he, he, he's not necessarily pedantic, but he likes things to be precise. So I think a good example, I forget which book it is now, but there's a great example where Reacher objects to somebody describing, talking about a spiral staircase, because a spiral is a two-dimensional shape. And so Reacher gets into this long, you know, sort of musing about how they shouldn't be called spiral staircases, they should be called helical staircases, because a helix is a three-dimensional version of a spiral. And so, um, you know, that is that kind of thing comes directly from, from Lee. And, you know, things like Reach's um, fascination with prime numbers, you know, um, things like that, you know, Lee will, will latch onto a certain topic and then he will, he will learn everything that there is to know about it in the world. And I think that that is reflected in, in Reacher as well. 
and also his ability to um, to draw conclusions. You know, there are there are some great examples. You know, if you think of the book One Shot, where the beginning of the book goes sort of step by step through the um, the, the assassin arriving in the parking garage um, and um, taking aim at the civilians and, and shooting. You know, you later learn that what you thought you saw was actually completely different. But he doesn't cheat. He shows every aspect and he lays it out in a particular way. If you look at it from that side, you see a certain picture. But Reacher looks at it from the other side and sees something completely different. And I think that that is both satisfying because, you know, as a reader, you don't feel cheated because all of the facts were there. They were there for you to see. If you had just looked at them the same way Reacher had looked at them, you would have seen that picture. So you feel that it's completely legitimate. But at the same time, it's kind of surprising and thrilling because who knew that that other picture was there and it was there all along? So, um, you know, that, that ability to draw conclusions, I think, is, is, is something that, you know, if ever I'm confused about something or I can't figure something out, you know, I'll call him up. And, you know, we always figure it out because he has that ability to look at things from other angles and see things that people don't see. Great. So uh, last uh, Reacher specific thing that I wanted to ask is, you know, obviously the way we've been living the last year is very different than we ever have been. People are, you know, quarantines, very separate. How do you think Jack Reacher would have been handling living in these times? Uh, would he honestly, ha would he even notice that there is a quarantine going on? Would it have uh, affected his day to day? Well, in terms of his day to day, it probably wouldn't have affected him hugely because, you know, he's, he's, he likes to be on his own. So, he, you know, quarantining or isolating wouldn't be a big issue. But yeah, he absolutely would have noticed because one of the things about Reacher is he is incredibly observant. You know, that's one of the reasons that he's able to solve the puzzles that he solved. So he would absolutely understand what was happening. Um, I think that he would be a little confused about why some people struggle with the idea of being isolated because he likes being isolated. So he would think, well, what's the big deal? And, um, you know, he, he always has this attitude of, you know, bad things happen, get over it. So I don't think you'd have much tolerance for people, you know, I, you know, you hear a lot of people complaining about, oh my God, I've got to wear a mask. It's infringing on my rights. You know, I could imagine Richard turning around and saying, listen, we're not asking you to storm Omaha beach. You know, this is, this is a pretty small inconvenience. So just, you know, shut up and get over it. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't think it, I don't think it would affect him enormously. And I think he would have a certain amount of difficulty understanding some other people's responses to it. Uh, that, that is great to hear. I, I, I wish we had Reacher out here right now, uh, pushing that message. Uh, but so the book is out, the Sentinel is out. What are you and Lee hoping that readers take away from this newest Jack Reacher book? Well, but you know, that is honestly a little bit of a, of a delicate question because, you know, this is the first time we've written it together. You know, Lee has this incredible legacy of 24 Reacher books. So, of course, you know, I bet, you know, he, he wants readers to be absolutely delighted with the book. But I, you know, I think he, you know, if, if, if there was any difference, you know, I would be, I would be hoping people was, were liking it, you know, just as much or maybe even more than his other books. So, you know, I'm, 
I'm, I'm a little biased since this is my first time, my first time out of the traps with Reacher. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that people love it. I'm hoping they like it for all the same reasons that they like all the other Reacher books. And if at the end of the day, they like it that little bit more, I would be delighted. That's great. Hopefully you're, hopefully you'll hear this is everyone's favorite one yet. And, uh, absolutely. So, uh, last thing on our show on books connect us, we always like to get, some book recommendations from the authors. So after people, of course, have picked up the Sentinel, they've read the Sentinel, is there something else maybe that you've read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things about writing is that you don't get as much chance to read as you, as you might like, which is, which is always disappointing. So I take every opportunity that I can. And there's a few things that I've read recently that, that really stand out. Um, you know, one of them, I, I typically go more in, when, when I'm writing, I, I somehow sort of veer into nonfiction mode. So a lot of what I've read recently has been nonfiction. But one thing that, um, one novel that stands out to me that I've read recently is by a friend of mine called Sean Cosby. It's a book called Black Top Wasteland. Um, but if you've come across that one, but it's phenomenal, you know, it's, it's, um, it's about a legendary getaway driver. Um, in his youth, he was known as the, as the best getaway driver in, in, in three states, um, in the area that, in the south where he lived. And um, like a lot of people, he tried to get away from his past. He tried to shake off the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, um, the problems that that had brought him, and he tried to go straight. But in the book, you find him being dragged back into that old life, but not because he is greedy or because he wants to be able to buy, you know, faster cars or nicer watches or anything. It's because of his background. You know, he is constantly struggling to escape from poverty, to support his kids, to uh, support his mother and, and also his own business. He owns a, an auto body shop, which is, which is in trouble financially. So, um, you know, he's doing these things to survive. And really, you know, it's a tragic book because um, this is somebody who's forced to do stuff that he knows isn't right, but he doesn't have a choice, which I think is, is really interesting as a reader because it raises those kind of moral, moral issues about right and wrong. Um, it's, it's, it's a really thrilling book. It's got some great action scenes. You know, a lot of them surrounding cars as well, which is actually quite hard to write. You know, I don't know if I could, if I, if I could do that. So there's some great scenes in there um, in terms of, of action and, and suspense. And also it raises a lot of hard questions, you know, it, it, it's all, it you know, makes you think about identity, you know, who are you as a person, what is your role, what are your responsibilities, you know, what is needed and demanded from you as a citizen, as a father, as a son. So all in all, you know, it's a complex book, it's a fantastic read, and um, certainly one that I would recommend. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, that, that's yeah. a great pick. It's a great book. Um, and then the other book, I'm, I'm, I only just, I'm only halfway through because it, it only just came out, but one of my favorite um, contemporary historians is Ben McIntyre. Um, he, he typically writes about the, um, the Second World War. I've read all of his the Second World War books. Um, and his latest book is called Agent Sonia. And this time he verges more toward the Cold War. And, you know, he writes history but is more dramatic and more exciting than most thrillers, most novels, um, because he picks the most fantastic subjects, he uncovers the most fascinating details, and then he presents it in a, in a just enthralling way. 
And ancient Sonia tells the story of um, a woman who appears to be just a regular, unassuming housewife living um, after World War II in a picturesque Cotswold village in, in England, you know, with a husband who has a regular job, who just seem like totally ordinary people. But what no one in the village knows is that she is actually a high-level Soviet spymaster. She's evaded attempts by the Germans, by the Rush, by, by um, the Americans, by the British to capture her. And she is running this high-level espionage network throughout Europe, which actually um, sets the stage for the Soviet Union being able to build the, their first atomic bomb and enter the, 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 the nuclear era and um, usher in the, the Cold War. So, um, you know, it's, it's just a, an absolutely wonderful book to read because the, it, it, you can't believe that it's true, and yet it is. And uh, the way that Ben McIntyre brings that kind of history to life is uh, it's tremendous, I think. Yeah, wow, those are very, those are great picks, and they're definitely great picks for people who are already fans of a, you know, Jack Reacher type book. These sound like just like incredibly real life thrillers. Absolutely, they're real. They're a real extension. If, if you like the fictional world that Reacher lives in, then you're going to love the real life world that uh, that Ben McIntyre talks about. You know, he's written other books to do with um, spying during the Second World War, to do with the creation of the SAS, you know, the British Special Forces Unit, and all of his books, without exception, are meticulously researched and um, and written in a way that it, you you just you know it, all of the same adjectives that you hear used about thrillers, you know, couldn't put down, couldn't stop turning the pages. They, these apply to these books. So, you know, I would challenge anybody, you know, you come across people who say that they don't like history. You know, I would challenge anybody who thinks that to, to pick up any of Ben McIntyre's books. And I guarantee within 10 pages, they're going to change their mind. Well, thank you. You've given our listeners a lot of great uh, recommendations. And of course, the first thing they should do, though, is pick up the Sentinel the new Jack Reacher novel by Lee Child and our guest today, Andrew Child. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show. This was really, this was really fun. Thanks so much, Pat. And thanks for the great questions. You made it easy. Ah, thank you. I will make sure to include that as our ending. Thanks so much. (laughs) And now here's an exclusive excerpt from the audiobook, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. Music first, Richard decided. He knew there was no shortage of venues in Nashville, but he wanted a particular kind of place, somewhere worn, with some history, where Blind Blake could have played back in the day, Howlin' Wolf even. Certainly nowhere new, or gentrified, or gussied up. The only question was how to find a place like that. The lights were still on in the bus depot, and a handful of people were still working or waiting or just keeping themselves off the street. Some of them were bound to be local. Maybe all of them were. Reacher could have asked for directions, but he didn't go in. He preferred to navigate by instinct. He knew cities. He could read their shape and flow like a sailor can sense the direction of the coming waves. His gut told him to go north. So he set off across a broad triangular intersection and onto a vacant lot strewn with rubble. The heavy odor of diesel and cigarettes faded behind him, and his shadow grew longer in front as he walked. It led the way to rows of narrow, parallel streets lined with similar brick buildings, stained with soot. 
It felt industrial, but decayed and hollow. Reacher didn't know what kinds of businesses had thrived in Nashville's past, but whatever had been made or sold or stored, it had clearly happened around there, and it clearly wasn't happening anymore. The structures were all that remained. And not for much longer, Reacher thought. Either money would flow in and shore them up, or they'd collapse. Reacher stepped off the crumbling sidewalk and continued down the center of the street. He figured he'd give it another two blocks, three at the most. If he hadn't found anything good by then, he'd strike out to the right toward the river. He passed a place that sold part-worn tires, a warehouse that a charity was using to store donated furniture. Then, as he crossed the next street, he picked up the rumble of a bass guitar and the thunder of drums. The sound was coming from a building in the center of the block. It didn't look promising. There were no windows, no signage, just a thin strip of yellow light escaping from beneath a single wooden door. Reacher didn't like places with too few potential exits, so he was inclined to keep walking. But as he drew level, the door opened. Two guys, maybe in their late twenties with sleeveless t-shirts and a smattering of anemic tattoos, stumbled out onto the sidewalk. Reacher moved to avoid them, and at the same moment, a guitar began to wail from inside. Reacher paused. The riff was good. It built and swelled and soared, and just as it seemed to be done and its final note was dying away, a woman's voice took over. It was mournful, desperate, agonizing, like a conduit to a world of the deepest imaginable sorrow. Reacher couldn't resist. He stepped across the threshold. The air inside smelled of beer and sweat, and the space was much shallower front to back than Reacher had expected. It was also wider, effectively creating two separate areas with a dead zone down the middle. The right-hand side was for the music lovers. There were a couple dozen that night, some standing, some dancing, some doing a bit of both. The stage was beyond them, against the far wall, taking up the full depth of the room. It was low, built out of beer crates with some kind of wooden sheeting nailed across the top. There was a modest speaker stack at each side, and a pair of metal bars hanging from the ceiling to hold the lights. The singer was front and center. She seemed tiny to reach her, five feet tall at the most, and as thin as a needle. Her hair was in a perfect blonde bob that shone so brightly Reacher wondered if it was a wig. The guitar player was to her left, nearest the door. The bassist mirrored him on her right. They both had wild curly hair and high sharp cheekbones, and looked so alike they could have been twins, certainly brothers. The drummer was there too, pounding out the beat, but the shadow at the back of the stage was too deep for Reacher to see her clearly. Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Aaron Leaf, and until next time, this has been Books Connect Us. Thank you.